Good morning. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Judge Chris Dillon. I'll be presiding today. And to my right is Judge April Wood. And to my left is Judge Michael Stadding. And we have Eddie Sanders as our clerk today. And we have one case on the calendar, and it's State versus Rogers. And if the, if the appellant is ready, we'll begin. The, we'll begin. And let, let me know how much time you want to reserve. Uh, ten minutes. Ten minutes? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Judge Dillon, and may it please the court. My name is Brandon Mays, and I represent Mr. Rogers. Your Honors, this case is about the trial court's compounding abuses of discretion under Rule of Evidence 702A, leading the trial court to admit unreliable DNA evidence, which was the only evidence tying Mr. Rogers to the scene. Let me just, let me clarify something. Is there an argument that this person wasn't Qualified as an expert, or is it just a fact that is it, it's all about the opinion testimony? It's all about the opinion testimony, okay, so Your Honor. Nothing, nothing to do with her being qualified as an expert? No, Your Honor. Okay. First, the trial court abused its discretion by denying Mr. Rogers' request to voir dire Seeley on her complex and impactful DNA opinion. I have a question for you on that. Isn't uh, is, the state brings up the fact that the defense attorney didn't ask to voir dire until almost at the end of the expert's? Um, testimony. What's your response to that? Your Honor, trial counsel objected before the opinion came out and asked to voir dire Seeley based on asked to voir dire Seeley on the foundation for her opinion. That is the appropriate time for counsel to object and to ask for voir dire. Um, certainly she could have done something pre-trial but the trial court wouldn't have been required to grant an, a motion in limine um, and per the rules she objected and asked for Wadir at the appropriate time. The opinion didn't come out until towards the end of her uh, direct examination. And the trial court abused its discretion by denying the Wadir request because there was no reason to deny Wadir and every reason to have trial counsel probe the opinion's reliability. Second, the trial court abused its discretion by admitting unreliable DNA evidence after denying the voir dire request and without considering the relevant reliability issues. By holding that the trial court abused its discretion, this court can reinforce the trial court's gatekeeping duty when complex DNA evidence is introduced and challenged pursuant to Rule 702A. On your first point about um, not being able to voir dire, how was how was your client prejudiced in that you got to cross-examine the witness and ask, him any, ask her any question you wanted to ask? Yes, Your Honor. Where's the prejudice, assuming it was error? Noning, nothing, none of the reliability issues that Mr. Rogers had with the evidence came out until cross. Basically, the prejudice here is that the trial court turned what should have been its gatekeeping admissibility duty into a weight of the evidence issue for the jury. So it hadn't done its proper gatekeeping duty before all of this came out. And turning to the voir dire issue, the trial court abused its discretion by, and failed its gatekeeping duty by denying Mr. Rogers' request uh, before Seeley stated, stated her opinion. Although the trial court does have discretion in the, in the procedures it uses to conduct an inquiry, the procedures it chooses should be based on the nature of the evidence. And McGrady instructs that a few questions may be appropriate when the evidence is on the simple end of the evidentiary spectrum. However, the trial court should do at least one of holding an in, in limine hearing, conducting voir dire, 
or accepting affidavits when, the evaluate, when evaluating the admissibility of evidence on the complex end of the spectrum. And touch DNA evidence, as is the case here, is very complex, technical, and nuanced, especially depending on the nature of the sample. And our federal cases have, have spoken to the importance of voir dire when the uncertainty attends the proffer of opinion testimony. And even though not required, voir dire can be especially beneficial in determining reliability. In our North Carolina cases dealing with witness uh, identification, this court has held that it was error not to conduct voir dire to determine admissibility. And our state Supreme Court has highlighted that error when, when a party objects and requests voir dire. And again, here, the trial court was put on notice that Mr. Rogers had issues with the foundation of this opinion testimony based on his repeated objections uh, on foundation and 702 grounds and his request for voir dire and even to make an offer of proof to tell the court what, what issues it looked to uh, probe. I want to make sure I just understand all the uh, standards of review. Or, so whether to allow the, uh, the voir dire is abuse of discretion. Is it also abuse of discretion whether or not once, as the judge performs the gatekeeping duty, is that an abuse of discretion whether or not to allow this person to give, a, to, to give an opinion? Yes, Your Honor. They're bo both, both are abuse of discretion standard to, in the procedures okay. the trial court uses and admitting the testimony. So the first point is that the trial court judge abused discretion by not allowing the voir dire in the first instance, and then, and then you'll have another argument. So I just want to make sure I understand that. Yes, Your Honor. And, uh, and our courts have highlighted that we should not expect trial courts to know all of the relevant issues that could attend all of the different expert evidence that they will be uh, evaluating for admission. This court in Pylon said that the parties play a role. And in Pylon, they found error, but said it wasn't prejudicial error because defendant didn't object. How is the trial court supposed to know what, you know, all of the issues that may uh, attend any type of evidence? But here, the trial court abused its discretion because it didn't know the issues. Even though it may have had inferable reasons uh, to deny voir dire, those reasons were arbitrary because it didn't know what issues uh, Mr. Rogers had with the evidence. And again, it prejudiced Mr. Rogers because it turned this admissibility issue into a weight of the evidence issue for the jury when it should have, had, when it should have conducted an inquiry um, as the gatekeeper. This brings me, brings me to the reliability of the opinion as addressed on cross after it had already been admitted. Because the trial court did not allow voir dire, it did not address the salient reliability issues. In fact, Seeley's testimony on cross established that the evidence was not reliable. Thus, the trial court abused its discretion in admitting it. And when the General Assembly amended Rule 702 in 2011, it added the federal rules uh, three-prong reliability test. First, the, evidence, the opinion must be based on sufficient facts or data. Second, it must be the product of reliable principles. And third, the expert must have reliably applied those principles to the facts in the case. Here, the first and third prongs are especially problematic, and there's overlap between them. To the sufficiency of the data, Seeley testified that she was able to extract 2.7 picograms of DNA from the original sample. Her, she testified her SOPs instructed her to use extreme caution 
for any original sample less than 250 picograms. That's almost 100 times what she was able to extract from this sample. And that extreme caution in the SOPs told her that she did not have a standard sample sufficient to run a standard protocol alone. And this turns to the application. It's not about whether she did the standard testing procedures for a standard sample correctly. It's that this, sam this sample was clearly not standard and required extreme caution. But she only testified that she did the standard protocols and then reported the results. And that's simply not enough. And she did have other options to ensure the reliability of the evidence, of her opinion in this case. She could have referenced the lab's internal validation reports that would have told her how the reliability drops off as the sample size decreases. And that, and that came out on cross. Did that part come out on cross that she could have done other things? Your Honor, she spoke to the, to the validation studies um, in her, in, before there was an objection in sort of the foundational questions. Um, with the uh, prosecutor, um, she didn't say what she could have done. They, they didn't get into any other specific uh, instructions that the SOPs might have had, but that's the purpose of a validation study is how, these, how their equipment under their SOPs works. Um, and she could have gone to those validation studies to ensure what she did was actually reliable. She could have retested the sample to see if the results could be repeated. But there was also a second deviation from the SOPs. The protocols, and this, was, this did come out on cross, the protocol said that when all of the RFU values, basically the, sig the signal strength, the height of the peaks on the electropherogram are below the stochastic threshold, and that threshold, anything below that, as, as you get further below the stochastic threshold, you have an increased chance that the results you're getting aren't reliable or are going to be difficult to determine a single source, a single source sample from a mixture. Um, it said when all the RFU values are below that stochastic threshold and there is an indication for a second contributor, she could not report the results. She did testify that all of the RFU values were below the stochastic threshold for the alleles that she had. And no second contributor was there. Well, she didn't rule that out. She, she was asked, is it possible there was a second contributor? And she said, it's possible. When she, asked, when she was asked why she didn't think there was a second contributor, she said, well, the peak heights were balanced. But then she undermined that reasoning in follow-on questioning when she, when she was asked, Don't, doesn't having an RFU value below the stochastic threshold uh, affect peak height balance? And she said, yes, it can. So she didn't, and she didn't give a probability saying, you know, I think it's, you know, X probability that this is a single source sample. She just said, I don't think it was a mixture. So she didn't properly rule that out. But on, under either deviation, at the very least, the trial court could not have found that Seeley reliably applied the lab's SOPs in this case, and the evidence should have been excluded. The state concedes, correctly concedes, that this error prejudiced Mr. Rogers because this is the only evidence tying him to the case. Under either prejudicial standard, uh, Mr. Rogers uh, would, have been, would have been prejudiced and the evidence should have been excluded. And if there are no other questions, I'll reserve the remainder. Are there any cases from around the, I mean, because 
I was looking for touch DNA cases from North Carolina, very few, and not, none really right on, on point, but are there any other cases around the country that you think is helpful to your position? Uh, your Honor, I don't have an answer specific to any cases, you know, off, off top of my head, but I can... This has come up all over the country, I'm just... Yeah, and in, in North Carolina, there's a, there's a dearth of case law on touch DNA, there's a dearth of case law on uh, denying voir dire in this context, uh, because I think it's just something that trial courts kind of do, or trial courts grant requests for voir dire. And I'll ask the state this too, because I, and I, I admit, I was not a trial attorney, so I'm just trying to think how a trial normally goes. If the state wants to put on an expert, typically they ask the expert a bunch of questions to get them qualified, and, and, and but, but you're saying that the judge, it's not always the case, but I think the judge can't, you're saying the judge can't make an informed decision on exercising discretion unless the defendant has a chance to cross-examine, to challenge the, the, the testimony that the state puts out. Is that typically the case, or is there another way that you can do something pre-trial to, to challenge this expert, because you know what the opinion they're going to give? Right. You, you could file a pre-trial motion and eliminate to do the same thing that you would have done on voir dire. Um, you don't have to under the rules, and, and the trial court, again, it's an abuse of discretion as to whether to grant that. Um, and there can be strategic reasons why you might not want to to do that, but. So when is it an abuse of discretion? Because I, I, I guess it's pretty standard for just the state to put on their evidence and ask questions, and, and, and there's no cross. They just get, they're, they're, they're admitted, and then you cross-examine the challenge, and it, that goes to the weight. So, so when do you, when, where do we draw the line where you should be allowed to ask questions, I guess at least to, so the judge can make an informed decision I think in, in keeping with the, the case law that, that allows for a flexible inquiry, um, the trial court has to do something once an opposing party objects, and especially when it asks for voir dire, and especially when it asks to make an offer proof of what it, what it wants to get into. The trial court has to do some kind of inquiry to say, okay, I've heard all this stuff. What are you, what are you going to get at that, that is different from that? And we didn't have that, even that in this case. It doesn't necessarily mean that the trial court has to go into full-blown voir dire, but at least something like a bench conference and, and bring the attorneys together and say, where are you going to go with this? And again, use its discretion in potentially limiting voir dire if it, if it thinks it's appropriate, um, if it allows voir dire and it's obvious that it's really not going anywhere that hasn't been um, addressed already, the trial court has the discretion to cut off voir dire. But what happened here was the trial court went, on it, went at it on its own. It thought it knew the issues. It asked some questions, and then it moved on. Yeah. And it didn't ask anything that defense counsel asked on, on, you know, it didn't address the issues that defense counsel addressed on cross. Can you distinguish this case from the case that the state cites, State v. Coffee, where all the coffee, the state says that all of the coffee factors were met here in this case uh, is like that one in regards to Ms. Seeley's testimony. Can you distinguish this case? Absolutely, Your Honor. In, in State v. Coffee, first, the defendant did not object um, to the admission of the evidence. Second, the nature of the evidence was completely different. Um, and you can infer this just by the language that the expert used. The, the expert said that the DNA was a match. Now, as Seeley testified on, um, on direct, I believe, and cross, she couldn't call this a match because there was missing allele data 
at different loci, meaning what she saw was consistent um, with Mr. Rogers' DNA profile. A match means I have all of the allele data at every locus, um, which would also lead you to infer that probably the original sample was a greater quantity and quality to be able to pull a result that got a match. Um, and again, with the, when the defendant in coffee doesn't object, the trial court doesn't know that there are any, that it might have any issues. And I suspect that the defendant in coffee didn't have issues because the nature of the, the evidence there, calling it a match, meaning you have all the data that you need, that is just not the, the evidence that we had in this case. Did, the, uh, did she testify, the expert testify, I'm just trying to remember, that there was a one in quadrillion chance or something? Did, she did, um, and Your Honor. Did that? I mean, is there any reliability on that? Because clearly if you, if you can match DNA, you can, you, can, you can do that, but just on base what she knew. The, the, so first of all, that number is not a reliability number. That is a probability that some random person out there would, that you would pull anywhere had this profile. And it's based on a lot of assumptions. First, that, the, that the, the call table you've generated is accurate or is reliable. Second, that it's a single source profile. She didn't rule that out, and that would drastically change that number. Um, also, that you would look to rule out other known unrelated individuals, and there were you know, two males living with TL that they did not rule out from that sample. Uh, and also, um, that, it, it, that it is in fact a random probability, but we know that pointing to Mr. Rogers in this case was not random. It, they ran uh, the, the DNA through CODIS, and however many people are in CODIS was the chances that you were going to find someone you know, with the closest to this this um, DNA profile. So that number, one, I think is wrong based on the assumptions uh, she made in generating that number, and two, it assumes reliability. So it's not a reliability number in itself. Yeah, thank you. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you. May it please the court, my name is Rebecca Lem. I'm with the Attorney General's Office and I'm representing the state in this matter. Um, I would like to point out first that touch DNA is not a different kind of DNA. It only refers to how the DNA uh, got to the location, in this case, off of skin cells as opposed to blood or semen or buccal swab. Um, I'd also like to point out that I think there's a confusion of terminology. There was no testimony about the standard procedure only applying to standard samples. The only standard that was discussed is the known standard sample from the defendant, which was a buccal swab. The standards of practice from the crime lab, the biology section, they apply to all analysis of DNA samples. DNA is DNA. Whether it's in your skin, your hair, your blood, or any other bodily fluid, it's the same four-step process of extraction, quantification, amplification, amplification, and analysis that's performed on each one. 
The defendant cannot show that the trial court improperly exercised its Rule 702 gatekeeping authority under an abuse of discretion standard where he must show that the trial court's admission of Ms. Seeley's testimony was so manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it cannot be the result of a reasoned decision. Um, it is relevant uh, that prior to the time that defendant's counsel actually made a voir dire request of Ms. Seeley, which was about 26 pages into uh, her testimony in transcript terms, she had all, there was already ample evidence on the record to support the trial court's decision to admit her testimony as reliable. She'd already had very significant discussions of her process, uh, the amount of DNA in the sample, and many other factors. And further, the trial court, upon actually getting a 702A objection, which occurred 30 pages, into her testimony, the trial court asked specific questions of Ms. Seeley, which demonstrate that the trial court was carefully assessing all three prongs uh, of 702A in terms of reliability, and Ms. Seeley responded to these courts to the trial court's satisfaction. Uh, the record supports all three prongs were met, and there's no indication that her testimony was reliable. For example, um, in terms of having sufficient facts or data, Ms. Seeley explained that there's a threshold concentration at the point of, point of quantitation that must be present in order to take the DNA uh, analysis forward. That amount is 0.001 nanograms or one picogram. Um, and she testified that she had enough DNA present at the, at the suspected point of entry that we're talking about the bottom sash of the window uh, in order to develop this profile. The amount in the sample was 2.7 picograms. That is more than two and a half times the minimum threshold that she testified to. Um, the fact that it might not be 200 picograms and it's 2.7 picograms, the fact that it met the threshold, that starts going to the weight of the evidence, not its admissibility. The weight of the evidence is properly left to the jury to consider. Ms. Seeley also explained in response to uh, the trial court's questions that there was adequate information at 21 of the 24 loci uh, in order to develop the profile. 11 of these were partial, 10 were complete, and three were missing. She testified that the minimum amount of DNA required, or, or you have to excuse me, I'm not a scientist myself, the minimum amount required was uh, information present at seven of the non-sex determining loci. Here there's 18. And four of these must be complete. Here there were seven complete locations, if you do the math. Therefore, that threshold was met in order to take this forward to analysis. She also explained that the analytic threshold utilized with the specific instrumentation, which was a 3130, is 75 RFU which, it's uh, been noted, relates to the amount, of, the amount of DNA present at each allele corresponds to a peak height. 75 RFU was the analytic threshold here. There's also a lower analytic threshold that she described, which is 30 RFU, which is the point where you can uh, distinguish an allele from non-allele background noise. She also talked about the stochastic threshold, which is th 350 RFU. The peaks were below this amount, but she explained that in this instance, the stochastic threshold only refers to the point where you can be confident that if you see a single peak, that there's not possi a possibility of a sister peak that's missing. Or Let that me you ask you a question see. again. Sure. And this is, uh, um, the, the judge has got to, 
is, is being called upon to exercise his discretion whether or not let this testament let yes. this opinion in. And is there ever is there ever a time where it would be an abuse of discretion not to allow the defendant to cross-examine the expert so that the judge will have all the information he or she would need to exercise that discretion? Because because I, I, I think the point that, that um, counsel's making over here is it's, it's not really fair. The judge doesn't have everything before him and to, to make that determination because they're just hearing one-sided questions. They're not allowed, he's not hearing the whole story and therefore it's an abuse of discretion not to hear all that before exercising that discretion. So apparently a, a lot of things came out on cross-examination, I guess, would, which would attack it, which could go to weight, but would it also go to reliability? And, and the judge didn't have the, the, the benefit of knowing that to be able to then make the determination, well, wow, should, should, should I have let this person testify? In opinion, at what point, I mean, how, do, how does that work in the trial level typically? Where, where, do we, where would you draw the line there? I, I think um, in this case, if you review the record, the def defendant in this case had six months notice that Ms. Seeley was a proposed expert, including her report, her CV, and her opinion. Um, I believe the appropriate time, and also I think it's important to point out that by the time the objection was made, there was already so much testimony from her on the record. The, the trial court needs to be satisfied with reliability, but it doesn't have to become an expert witness itself. Um, I think if the legislature had intended for there to be some requirement to have voir dire, it could have done so um, like it does in the rape shield law or other instances if there was some requirement to have some other procedure. I think if this had happened prior to the time that she had put forth any evidence showing the reliability of her testimony, maybe that might have been different. But here, there's already, by the time that there was an actual 702A objection, she had been testifying for 30 pages. I'm not saying it's the case, and this, this is what happened in this case, but what if she testified, yeah, we ran it through this equipment, blah, blah, and on cross-examination, it would have come out, but we're having trouble with the machines or the manufacturer, they're having trouble with those machines all over the country, and the judge could have thought, thought well, hmm, maybe it's not so reliable, and, and, and so, so I guess that's the, that's the point they're making is the, the judge cannot properly exercise their discretion without at least hearing both sides of what's going on. I, I think at that point, had that come out, had there actually been any evidence that her, her testimony was not reliable, which there wasn't, and I can talk more about that, there could have been a motion to strike or the judge on its own accord could have, could have struck her testimony from the record but it didn't come out. There, nothing came out on cross-examination that undermined the reliability of Ms. Seeley's testimony. But isn't the proper time to ask for voir dire at the point in time right before the expert's gonna give his or her opinion? I think that's the point of the defendant is that all those right. you know, preliminary questions, of course, are not really objectionable because, I mean, she's an expert. She can get up there and she can testify, but whether or not her opinion is reliable, isn't the proper time to object or to ask for voir dire right before she gives her actual opinion. The trial court had discretion on how to test Ms. Seeley's reliability. Had the trial court decided to grant voir dire, that would have been fine too, but is not required to do so. 702A and McGrady in particular um, uh, specifically held that there's no particular pre procedure required and confirmed Albert's finding that a flexible determination is required and the trial court has discretion on how to test the expert's testimony. Uh, 
But if you wait until cross-examination, then isn't that a little late because now you're into the wait, waiting of the testimony versus admissibility? There is no indication here that had, uh, had Vardir been allowed that the trial court would have kept out Ms. Ely's testimony. Everything that was asked of her on cross-examination uh, was answered by her and shows her reliability. She testified on numerous occasions about that she followed the standards of practice and the interpretation guidelines therein. She explained why it was appropriate to interpret this, uh, this sample as a single source profile. She explained that there's a peak height ratio, which was met in this case, and that the peaks were balanced. And under those circumstances, it was appropriate to determine this so, as a single source. So, I, I want to ask, I'll probably ask you, like, what, what came out on cross-examination that you think would have been damning to her testimony? So, but let me ask you a question. Sure. Assume that it came out on cross-examination, yeah, we, we're having trouble with our machines. And that would have, like, caused the judge to maybe second-guess his ruling. What do you do in that circumstance? Does it go to wait, or do you ask, is it incumbent upon the defendant to, to move to strike or to reconsider the, the, reconsider the, the prior ruling? Or what do you do at that point? If someone comes out on cross-examination where the judge, well, gosh, if I would known that, I would have exercised my discretion differently. Well, I've, or is the I've, judge supposed to just, you know, ex motu or whatever the word is, come out on, the, on his own and say, I, I, you know, and just and do it? I mean, what, what normally would happen? I believe the judge could do that, or the defendant would most likely make a motion to strike, hopefully if the attorney was listening to the evidence. But uh, sure, I mean, I think a, a judge could. If it's something came out where she says, I performed all of these analyses on these various pieces of data, but, oh, the machine was broken, so really I've got no idea. But I you're think the likelihood of that happening is, is exceedingly rare, but I think the judge had, if something came out that so completely undermined its prior reliability finding, there are other remedies for that. You're saying there's nothing that came out on cross that would have there, made it likely that the judge would have exercised his discretion differently? No, there is not. Um, it, and Ms. Seeley testified on repeatedly concerning, the, concerning that she followed that she followed the standards of practice, which include the interpretation guidelines. Uh, she also explained that her report had been, had been reviewed, and it was confirmed at, on direct and cross, had been reviewed by another, by the lead technical director, I believe, from the crime lab to ensure that it was accurate and scientifically sound. She talked about the, the uh, validation procedures at the lab, which were done on, with the specific reagents the specific process, the specific instrumentation to ensure that the results would be reliable. Uh, there's nothing magical about this being a DNA sample. There's a touch DNA sample as opposed to something else. When we're talking about the quantity of DNA present in the sample, which seems to be the defendant's main concern, it met the threshold to take it forward. There's no question that it met the threshold. The fact that the defendant is complaining that it was closer to the threshold than he would like. That goes to the weight. That Did it come out on direct that, yeah, I think it came from one person. It could have come from, I can't rule out it came out from the second person, but it could have come from one person. Did that come out on direct? Because why wouldn't that make a difference? That was on cross, I believe. And why wouldn't that make a difference in a judge's mind? Well, gosh, there's a chance this, uh, they can't conclusively or tell well, me that it came from one person. And that makes all the difference in the world, it would seem like. I believe the question was on cross and it asked, uh, is it possible that there could have been a second contributor? I mean, if you ask a scientist, is something possible? 
you know, I mean, it could be a one in a quadrillion, octillion case, and they're going to say it's possible, but, and she did that. She said it's possible, however, because there was sufficient quantity and quality of data, and because the peak heights were balanced and other factors were met, it was appropriate to interpret this as a single source profile. And she, I think it was even read into the record from the interpretation guidelines where that was appropriate to interpret that as a single source profile based on the interpretation guidelines. So basically it wasn't likely that it came from No. Okay. No, that was, that was not what she said. Uh, well, how I mean, do you respond to the defendant's arguments that the um, SOP establishes the 250 uh, picograms per milliliter in order to have a sufficient uh, sampling, but that what was removed from the window sash was only 27 picograms, well, 10 times below the threshold? Well, first of all, that's, I don't believe that's what the, was, is on the record for the testimony. Unfortunately, these were not actually admitted into evidence. It was testified to that the amount of DNA required to take a sample forward to analysis at the point of quantitation is one picogram, 0 0.001 nanograms. The amount present was 2.7 picograms. What was said was that if the amount's under 250 picograms, extreme caution is to be used. Now, she repeatedly testified that she utilized the interpretation guidelines in analyzing all of her samples, and she followed them. So it, it comes, the reason is that that included using extreme caution in analyzing her sample. She explained numerous ways she did this, or numerous things that she considered in interpreting the sample, such as the peak height threshold being met. Um, all the peaks were balanced. Uh, she explained, in this case, there were 21 loci present out of 24 in terms of having information present, where the minimum's only seven that need partial information, four of which must be complete. It's well over the minimum threshold needed to take this well, Was there testimony analysis. that the odds of pulling somebody off the street would be one in what, one quadrillion, that they would match at these 21 points and all that? The odds, the statistics she discussed was that in comparing the partial profile, the one from the bottom sash rail, the suspected point of entry, the odds of pulling a random person that contained the same partial DNA profile that was in this sample is one in 1.5 quadrillion. Now, just to put this in perspective, this court recently um, ruled in the case of State versus Graham, which had one of the same experts, Shannon Guy. And in that case, that had a complete sample. And in that case, the statistic was, I think, something like one in 150 octillion. I had to look that up. An octillion is magnitudes larger than quadrillion. But again, you know, we're talking about really big and really small numbers. Here, one in 1.4 quadrillion, or one in 1.5 quadrillion, that's more than the amount of people on the planet. Isn't it true, though, that the smaller the sample of DNA, the greater probability there is for a false positive or false negative, where the sample could actually be labeled a background as opposed to an ALL? That is true. That goes to, but however, probability, uh, I, I don't think it was read into the record what the probability is, but that's why they perform validation studies at the lab and set thresholds. The, threshold he, the thresholds here were set for, at various levels, for example, one picogram in order to take it forward. That was set on that instrumentation using those reagents and validation studies. That's why they do validations internally in the lab and set thresholds. A threshold's a threshold. It's, it's not like you say, oh, well, I think it's kind of close, so we're not going to do it. Sure, if they had had 
more, it might have gone weighted. It would have been this more confident, a higher confidence level, but that doesn't mean it wasn't sufficient. So it, one picogram is sufficient to take it forward, but yes. if it's under 250 picograms, you're supposed to use extreme caution. That is correct, and she indicated repeatedly that she followed the interpretation guidelines and the standards of practice in her interpretation. Further, that her report had been, had been reviewed to make sure it's scientifically sound by another qualified lab analyst, I think in this case it was the technical lead, who had signed off on her report as being scientifically sound. it met the threshold set forth in the standards of practice. The standards of practice are scientifically sound and have been validated. Uh, additionally, immediately before her, Shannon Guy, who I think you also saw in that other case, had talked at length about um, various other measures taken at the lab in terms of audits, external audits, internal audits, et cetera, during, at the same lab during the same period of time. And further, Ms. Seeley specifically talked about the fact that the validations done internally in the lab are using the particular process, the particular reagents, which are the chemicals used to develop the DNA profiles. So that data is reliable. Look at it, now look at your chart on page 16. Just, uh, I just had a question. You got these numbers match on a lot of them, but some of them say any. That just means that there was an missing. That's, a, that's, sure. that's, what the only, that's the only reason you'd have an any. It's not because the you have some other number that might mm -hmm. come up. That's right. Ms. Seeley explained in her testimony that any, what she called a, a carrot, she, she explained that that's a, that little sign's a carrot, any refers to having insufficient data to read it as a peak. The analytical threshold at the lab is 75. Um, so if, it, the, if the peak is lower than that, it's not read onto the allele call table. So what you're seeing on the allele call table are peaks where the analytical threshold's met, and it's 75. If it's not met, does it, does it still give a number? It's just not reliable? I believe that the my understanding, and as I, I'm not an expert myself, is that if the amount is below 75, it's not met on the call table, but part of the interpretation guidelines would be, it says that you can cautiously consider information that's below the analytical threshold as part of the overall interpretation of the data, so, but it's not listed on the allele call table. Because like, like Hit, like at one of the points, his numbers was 15.2 and 16, and here it says 15.2 and any. Right. I mean, there was no evidence that that any was below the, the threshold and came up with some totally different number, and they were like, well, it's not going to be helpful us to convict this guy, to, so we won't, we'll just put any, because there wasn't any evidence that the, the any would have excluded him. I guess. No, there's no evidence that the NEs would have excluded, and in fact, the fact that the profiles were interpreted as consistent, uh, I think would have, are, are fairly clear that uh, they've considered, the, the interpretation guidelines are taken as, you look at all of the data there. I understand that, but if, if his number yeah. 16 and the, and, the, and the sample was any, and it was at 74, not at 75, and the any read out as 12 or some different number, I, that would give me some concern. Like, you know, it might not be totally reliable, but that, that would be 
exculpatory, I would think. But but you're saying that in the any number, there's there's no number that came out that. I'm not saying that there's no number that came out. I can only speak to what's in the testimony because the reports so and the, the standards of practice were not introduced. About that. Okay, that's fine. However, it, it, I think it it was pretty clear that they interpret the interpretation guidelines take that's into fair. the whole account, the whole picture. Okay. Um, I'd like to point out that there, as, I, as I've said before, there is no requirement to allow voir dire of witnesses, uh, of expert testimony, per McGrady and Daubert, that's still good law. Um, the flexibility allowed to the trial court, in this case when there was a 702 objection, the trial court, which is what need, the trial court needs to be satisfied with the reliability, did ask very specific questions of Ms. Seeley and satisfied itself that her testimony was going to be reliable. Um, the, de the defendant here cites to Ninth Circuit case of Holquin. Um, it's only the minority of federal circuit courts that have some kind of requirement of voir dire of expert witnesses. That is not the case here. The defendant also cites to the case of, I believe it's State versus Brown, where it was found that there was error not to allow voir dire, but that was a completely different circumstance. In State versus Brown, it was a fact witness, a character witness. There was a woman on trial for murdering her husband, and she was claiming self-defense. And she wanted to bring in the ex-girlfriend of the husband to testify that he had been abusive. She had Her attorney had requested to voir dire the expert witness. The judge had said, yeah, I'll allow that, and then didn't. And that, that witness was not allowed to testify. That is completely different than here. In that case, there was no record created as to what that witness would have testified to. That is not the case here. I mean, Ms. Seeley, I think, testified for 45, 50 pages. And the defendant had the chance to cross-examine her. Um, vigorous cross-examination per Talbert, per Dalbert, vigorous cross-examination, presentation of contrary evidence, careful instruction of the burden of proof are the traditional and appropriate means of attacking what the defendant here might see as a shaky but admissible evidence. Cross-examination was the appropriate place if there were questions about is this enough once it met the threshold. That was the appropriate case to attack this evidence. Um, in the Federal Rule of Evidence 702 Advisory Committee notes, it states that the trial court's role as a gatekeeper is not intended to serve as a replacement for the adversary system. And in this case, the, defendant was able, the defendant's trial counsel was able to vigorously cross-examine Ms. Seeley without interruption um, for as long as she cared for. Uh, she did not, after redirect, she didn't ask any follow-up questions. Um, I believe her concerns, nothing came out on cross-examination to undermine the reliability of Ms. Seeley. She was able to adequately answer the questions of so you can ask questions on cross that would go to wait, but you're saying it, w it wouldn't necessarily be inappropriate for the defense counsel to, to also ask the trial court judge, look, this, this testimony, is this opinion is clearly unreliable. We move to strike and you reconsider it, reconsider your prior ruling. And I guess if the judge allows it, then we could be up here on appeal just on, was that still, could the jury, uh, can you unring the bell? And that would be a different issue. But you're saying that wouldn't be inappropriate 
if something came out on cross that the machine just didn't work and made it totally unreliable that you could move ask the, the sure to reconsider the, the sure I, I think that's really and, I, and as you said I think the the trial court on its own initiative if something came out which I, I, it's hard to imagine how how it would not have come out to this point if the machine had been broken or acting up uh, but if something like that came out, sure, the judge, if he saw something, it's like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Nothing led me to. Uh, now, in the exercise of my discretion, I don't think it's reliable. So I'm yes. going to instruct the jury to, to not consider that opinion testimony. And if the jury convicts based on a bunch of other very minor evidence, we might say that it was prejudicial that it happened that way. But we don't have that. That's not the case here, is what you're saying. Yes, that's correct. I don't think there was anything that came out on cross-examination that undermined Ms. Seeley's testimony. She was able to explain, uh, for example, the concerns about a possible second contributor. She was able to explain why it was appropriate to interpret it per the, per the standards of practice as a single source profile in this instance. I mean, she answered all of the questions and there were no inconsistencies in her testimony. In that vein, the defense also takes issue with the fact that the trial court refused to allow an offer of proof. And you yourself have even indicated, well, even the standard operating procedures manual didn't come into evidence. But what's your um, stance on the refusal of the trial court to allow the offer of proof that was requested by the defense? Sure. I think, again, this goes to um, the flexibility and discretion allowed, the tr allowed to the trial court in this case. Um, you know, it's very clear from reading the testimony that the defendant's trial counsel had and was well aware of the standards of practice, the Ms. Seeley's report. He, she had all of that six months in advance. It, the trial court, in order to stop all, would have to stop all trial proceedings, have the jury wait. You know, it, it's in the trial court's discretion to do that or not do that. And as we've talked about before, had it come out in cross-examination, that there was something unexpected that completely undermined the reliability of Ms. Seeley's testimony, the defendant could have done a motion to strike or the trial court on its own initiative could have, could have had the jury disregard her testimony, but that did not come out. I'd like to also point out the defendant complains that there were no findings of fact uh, in this matter. The trial court also is not required to make findings of fact in or conclusions of law related to its decision to admit or deny expert testimony under Rule 702A. And if the legislature had intended to make this a requirement, it could have done so. Um, for example, findings of fact are required uh, as part of Rule of Evidence 412D, the rape shield law. Um, motions to suppress evidence, proceedings regarding capacity, motions for appropriate relief, those, it's all written into the statutes that the judge needs to make findings there. Here, it was not written in here uh, that that's required. And, and it's obvious what the trial court had considered here in making its decision to admit Ms. Seeley's testimony as reliable. You have, uh, before the 702A objections, you have 30 pages of her testimony, which she testified to various factors that go to all three prongs of reliability, and the trial court asked its own questions. We know it's so on appeal, we're asked to determine whether or not the judge abused his discretion. So we are just to assume that there's any way to look at the evidence that would not be an abuse of discretion. We just assume the judge did it that way, I guess, because there was no findings. Well, how the, the judge, how the judge exercises discretion, there's no way of knowing. 
the defendant has to show uh, that the trial court's admission of her testimony was so manifestly unsupported by reason or was so arbitrary based on the record before it that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision. You have something 45 or 50 pages of Ms. Seeley's testimony here to look at to see what supported the trial court's decision. I believe something like 33 or 34 pages occurred before his decision to admit her testimony. So there's ample evidence here. I'll give you a minute to wrap up if you want. Okay. All right. Unless there are any further questions, the state asks that you find no error in the lower court's opinion. Thank you, Mr. Robert. Thank you. You've got about 12 and a half minutes for rebuttal. If you could speak to what, what came out on cross-examination do you think was, was damning that might have caused the judge to have changed his mind about or should have affected the, the analysis? Yes, Your Honor. And I think it kind of gets to when it happened. Um, but she testified that any sample under 250 picograms of original DNA, she was required to use extreme caution. What we have after that is really nothing of, of her explaining what that means, what she's supposed to do in exercising extreme caution. And yes, she testified, I followed the standard procedures in, in analyzing this sample. But I followed the standard operating procedures doesn't address I exercise extreme caution. And, and if she did mean to include extreme caution and I followed the standard procedures, that's, that's now just asking the court to take the Ipsy Dixit of the expert that you know we see first in Joiner. That's not enough. You can't just have a, an expert say, I did things appropriately and reliably. You have to see Was what they did. Was she asked on cross if she used extreme caution? Did any of that come out on cross? Well, they, they to indicate that she didn't use extreme caution, I guess. She didn't, and, and that gets to what was introduced as evidence and what wasn't. If Mr. Rogers' trial counsel had gone to move, moved to uh, introduce the SOPs and really go through those on cross, he's now losing the right to close, which is a significant right in trial, in trial court. And he had already asked to voir dire before the opinion came out. That's when the, the trial court could have heard both sides of the argument introducing whatever they needed to without the strictures of the, the rules of evidence um, to really get at what the issues were. And again, the trial court, as it was doing that, could have evaluated and reevaluated what it was hearing and cut it off at any point if it thought it was not going anywhere. But we didn't even get that. We didn't even let trial counsel tell the trial court, these are the issues I have. And you see that the trial court did not address those in its questions. And even if the trial court had gone through all the questions um, that, that were asked to see on, on cross before admitting the, the evidence in front of the jury, I would, be, I would be up here arguing another well, point. Well, that's what I'm saying. Why isn't it enough to be able just to ask the trial court, I mean, after you cross-examine, Your Honor, this, this evidence is clearly unreliable because you might have a witness that could be biased against the defendant for some reason. It could be anything. And, and, and ask the judge to, to reconsider. And if the judge at that point says, you know, I probably should have struck it or I'm not going to allow it, I know you can't unring the bell and maybe it should be a mistrial. I don't know. But why, why, why is it? Because you could have that in any case. You I mean, that's certainly the possibility, Your Honor. Um, I think not being able to 
fully sort of probe the reliability the way she would have in voir dire um, because she loses that right to close probably just kept her from, you know, at that point she was like, okay, now what I have is weight. We're not going to be able to get down to these little nitty gritty things. Um, and, and that was her strategy. But what, what is clear is that the trial court's gatekeeping duty is to address those things prior to the admission of the, of the testimony. Um, and it, it's not just so manifestly unsupported by reason. You have the three-prong reliability test that is now incorporated in 702. Um, and, it, and not asking for voir dire or motion in limine pri you know, prior to trial or early in the testimony, well, it's not Mr. Rogers' you know, burden to establish that the, the uh, testimony is reliable. It's the state's, it's the proponents of the, the evidence. But before the opinion came in, Mr. Rogers objected on 702A and asked for voir dire. And that's when the trial court should have at least heard what the issues were, and it didn't even do that. And I, and I would say, we don't know what would, would have come out in, um, in voir dire. It, it, she was obviously, trial counsel was obviously limited in what she was going to put in front of the jury um, once it now became just the weight issue. So. Did it come out on cross-examination that the DNA from the window sash um, that was tested that, that she thought, Miss Seeley thought that it was a male contributor because it had white chromosomes, but did it come out on cross-examination that there were two other males living in the home and that that DNA sample wasn't, um, it wasn't compared against their DNA or did that, did that ever come out during the trial? Your Honor, I can't tell you specifically whether she said she did not but I, I'm pretty sure she did not compare um, that sample to any of the other male rel relatives in the house. Did it come out during the trial, or, or are you aware? I, I am not. I can't tell you for sure uh, uh, right now. Um, also, getting to sort of where we are on this, this original amount of DNA, yes, 2.7 picograms was more than the one picogram minimum um, to test, but it shows you what you can expect on the quality of the results after you amplify this sample. And um, Seeley testified that another sample she had was 1.8 picograms, and she didn't even amplify that one, even though she could have under the, the lab's SOPs. And your honors, if there are no further questions, I would like to just wrap up. The trial court should have allowed Mr. Rogers to voir dire Seeley before allowing her to give her expert opinion. Moreover, the trial court admitted the evidence when Seeley's testimony on cross established that the evidence was unreliable. The trial court abused its discretion in both instances. Thus, the evidence should have been excluded. And for the reasons stated in the briefs, the state also did not elicit sufficient evidence to convict Mr. Rogers on the larceny and sexual battery charges. Consequently, Mr. Rogers respectfully requests this court reverse the larceny and sexual battery convictions, and for any surviving judgment, Mr. Rogers requests this court vacate and remand for a new trial. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take it under advisement. Do you, do you have some swearing? That's right, yes. Okay, we're gonna just, we, we won't adjourn. We got, we're gonna do a swearing in, but we'll give you a few minutes to.
we're not going to adjourn court. We're, we're going to switch. And if you want to adjourn and start a new. Well, I guess we could do that. Let's yeah. go ahead and adjourn court, and then we'll we'll start back up in about five minutes. All right.